Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Mankind in its present state has been around for a quarter of a million years, yet only the last 4,000 have been of any significance. So what did we do for nearly 250,000 years? We huddled in caves and around small fires, fearful of things that we didn't understand. It was more than explaining why the sun came up. It was the mystery of enormous birds with heads of men and rocks that came to life. So we called them gods and demons, begged them to spare us, and prayed for salvation. In time, their numbers dwindled and ours rose. The world began to make more sense when there were fewer things to fear. Yet, the unexplained can never truly go away, as if the universe demands the absurd and impossible. Mankind must not go back to hiding in fear. No one else will protect us, and we must stand up for ourselves. While the rest of mankind dwells in the light, we must stand in the darkness to fight it, contain it, and shield it from the eyes of the public, so that others may live in a sane and normal world. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I am Christian Sager, and we are on our third episode about creepypastas. This, uh, I, I want to say it was this time last year that we did the first one, mm-hmm. and people really liked it, so we did a second one, and then I, I would say, especially this time of year, we get about an email or two a week suggesting different cre- yeah. creepypastas that we read and possibly do on the show. And the one that we have been hearing about the most is called SCP. And we looked into it and it fit the show perfectly. It's almost like they designed it just for us. So I hope uh, that the, the creators of SCP, the writers of these various creepypastas, are out there listening. We love what you're doing. Yeah, SCP Foundation. SCP stands for Special Containment Procedures. Uh, it's, uh, and you can find this, by the way, at scp slash wiki dot wiki dot dot com, or just do a, a web search for, uh, SCP Foundation, or we'll also include a link to it on the landing page for this episode at stuff to blow your mind dot com. Yeah. It's a fabulous, uh, just a catalog, encyclopedia of all these weird specimens that are presented, presented as if they are under scientific scrutiny, as if mm-hmm. these specimens are being, uh, investigated. Uh, very cautiously by, uh, by, by individuals who have scientific curiosity about the specimens, but also the best interests of mankind and its sanity at heart. Yeah, they pitch it as being kind of like that TV show Warehouse 13, but mm-hmm. what I thought more of was, uh, spoilers, Cabin in the Woods, uh, and, and what's oh, going yeah. on behind the scenes in that movie. Um, so, okay, maybe you have never heard one of our creepypasta episodes before, so we're going to give you a real quick intro to it, although I recommend that you go check out the ones that we've done previously. Creepypastas are viral copy-and-paste text in the form of horror stories. They evolved from copypasta, which is another sort of viral copy-and-paste text thing. They take the shape of urban legends, mainly appearing as if they're something that actually happened. Uh, and they mimic first-person accounts, especially scientific ones, which is why we're attracted to them, because we like to, on these episodes, take the scientific ones and kind of extrapolate out what's actually going on here science-wise. Uh, so we have a penchant for this genre. 
The most popular one that you've probably heard of is Slenderman. Now, the genre really seems to have hit its peak in 2010, but it is still chugging along as SCP is total evidence. Of. Oh, yeah, there's a new television series. That's right. Sci-fi, right. Yeah, in fact, Robert and I just did an interview with Playboy magazine, of all places, about uh, this upcoming sci-fi TV show, Channel Zero, that's all about different creepypastas, and I mm-hmm. guess the first one that they're going to do is Candle Cove. They're basically going to take some of these creepypastas and adapt them for television. Yeah, I haven't seen it myself yet, but I've heard great things. Yeah, me either. Um, but back to SCP, so... The basic idea here is that it's a foundation that is trying to uh, contain and protect us from all these various entities that are sort of weird horror abstractions, right? Is yeah. that fair? Yeah, and it's I think it's kind of I like see SCP Foundation as kind of an evolution of the form because yeah. the the more classic sen- uh, examples of pasta and creepy pasta, they're they're such I mean they straddle fiction and reality in such a way that you're supposed to misinterpret them. Like it's right. the kind of thing where someone is pasting it onto a message board, like an individual saying, hey, has anyone ever had a bad experience with this medication? Yeah. And then someone pastes, as in copy and paste, pasta. Yeah. They paste this this uh, this ridiculous story of something that happened to somebody, and then you're supposed to potentially think it's real. Right, right. Whereas SCP, SCP Foundation, it's not so much, they're, they're not really pushing the these, this is real, this really happened angle but they're playing with the genre. They're still, uh, I believe, anonymous uh, entries. I think so, yeah. yeah. Uh, they basically are cataloging all of these creatures, entities, whatever they are, uh, as if they're all in containment. Right. And uh, so the guidelines for writing one of these is that the article should have an interesting idea, a reasonable containment procedure for whatever it mm-hmm. is that's being contained, and a clear description of each entry. Uh, they also operate on a rating system, which was really uh, nice for us to be able to, yeah. to, to get like a, a good dive in. Um, if the page is low rated, they're deleted from the site if they receive a negative nine rating or lower. Um, so these people are very focused on quality more so than a lot of the creepy pasta sites that we've been to before. There's also a spin-off game. I haven't had a chance to play it yet, but it's called Containment Breach, where you play a disposable human guinea pig <laughs> that's stuck in the facility and the, it undergoes a containment breach, so you're alone with all the escaped entities. I, I just really liked a lot of these. They play to the weirdness of horror rather than to the gore of some of the creepy pastas, and I... I that appealed to me. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I also love the emphasis on humor and absurdity. There's still plenty of unsettling aspects to the various uh, specimens. Yeah. But more often than not, the entries put a smile on my face or even elect a giggle. Yeah. Um, plus, there's a fair amount of, of variety in the style. Most of the top entries retain that case report format. But uh, but there are tone shifts uh, here and there. And uh, and some rely on visuals more so than others. There's even one entry, at least, uh, SCP-2521. That's entirely, uh, it's told entirely through visuals, through the sequential use of like industrial hazard signs <laughs> to tell the story of a deadly, but perhaps loving shadow entity that creeps in and, and, uh, terrifies and potentially, uh, consumes, uh, one of the researchers. Yeah, I really love the creativity on the site. Definitely recommend that you go visit it. So our mission today and on this episode is we each took three of our favorite specimens and then we extrapolated out scientific lessons that we can learn from them. Yeah, so view it as, A, a celebration of SCP Foundation materials, uh, but also 
using uh, different examples from SCP as a as a stepping stone to, to then discuss some equally fascinating and weird science, real world science yeah. behind uh, the the fiction. Okay, so we're going to start off with one of Roberts, and this one is called the Sculpture. Yeah, this one's pretty cool because it not only is the idea interesting, it's also the original specimen. This was the oh, first right. SCP yeah. Foundation specimen to have a write-up. And I'm just going to read uh, from the description. Quote, move to site 19, 1993. Origin is of yet unknown. It is constructed from concrete and rebar with faces of Krylon brand spray paint. SCP-173 is, an, an, is animate and extremely hostile. The object cannot move while within a direct line of sight. Line of sight must not be broken at any time with SCP-173. Personnel assigned to enter a container are instructed to alert one other before blinking. Object is reported to attack by snapping the neck at the base of the skull or by strangulation. In the event of an attack, personnel are to observe Class 4 hazardous object containment procedures. So, uh... A lot of these remind me of like the premises for Doctor Who episodes. And this one immediately made me think of the Weeping Angels, which are sort of a a favorite on the newer Doctor Who episodes. Yeah, indeed. Like this is the the, the trope, right? The the entity that cannot move as long as you're looking at it. But if you look away, it's going to creep in with alarming speed. Another big example of this are the hedge creatures from Stephen King's novel, The Shining. Oh, yeah, that's Mm -hmm. right. One of the things the. Shining movie is my favorite movie of all time, but that is the one thing from the novel I really wish had made it in there. Yeah, that's right. Because in the in the in the movie, the original Kubrick film, we we yeah. got this hedge maze. Yeah, and certainly that works very well within the, the you know the, the that adaptation. Yeah, but in the original novel, there are these hedge animals, and if you look away, then you look back, and they move closer, and they and, get closer and closer. And I haven't seen it yet, but I you know Stephen King made his own adaptation of it, and I believe mm-hmm. the hedge creatures are in that. I think so. I think they yeah. they kept. It, but I've, I've not seen that one of either. these days. I'll get to it now. SCP-173, as the picture uh, seems to illustrate, is kind of this giant space baby from a young <laughs> Slunkmeyer film. Yeah, the, uh, the image is pretty crazy. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> like it's it's a little bit bad, but it's also it's it's creepy to look at. Yeah, because you, yeah. you're trying to imagine this thing moving when your eyes are adverted. And I believe this is also the most popular one, right? Or I, one of the most popular I think, yeah, ones? Yeah, it's, it's, it's right up there on the top of the list, if not the most popular. Uh, and certainly it's been around the longest. Yeah. And it is a good, it's a really good like template for yeah. other, um, of, I imagine for anyone creating one of these. Now, in addition to the, the head creatures from Stephen King's The Shining and the Weeping Angels from Doctor Who, which, uh, which as you pointed out, these are, these, uh, on the show were ancient alien predators who resemble winged humans and they, they make use of time paradoxes. So they move swiftly, but only if nothing is looking at them. Yeah. And apparently if two weeping angels look at each other at the same time, they get trapped in their stone forms. Yeah. But then on top of these fictional examples, there's Ninja Cat from YouTube. Have you seen these? I don't know what this is. It's exactly the same premise. So oh, yeah. This, it's it's uh, the, and somebody pointing their camera at this cat that's peeking around a corner at them down the hallway. It's a real cat, not real like cat. a cartoon. Yeah. Okay. And then the camera moves away for a second, moves back, and the <laughs> cat is peeking around a closer corner, and they okay. move away. And then when they come back, the cat is even closer. But just like the hedge creatures or the weeping angels yeah. or this particular uh, SCP specimen, you never actually see it move. Oh. It just gets closer and closer and closer till it's right on you. Wow. No, I haven't seen that one, but that sounds like it would be very amusing. Yeah. It, oh, it is. It's, it's, it's wonderful. 
but this last example, Ninja Cat, uh, given that it's a, a natural world predator as opposed to an otherworldly one, it raises the question, does direct line of sight, direct eyesight even, protect a prey animal, such as a human, yeah. from a predator, such as a a tiger or yeah, a weeping cat. angel or a hedge monster? Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a wonderful question. And, mm. uh, and indeed, we have some answers to that. So eye contact is, of course, something that creepily transcends species. Uh, and, and I mean, it's creepy enough with, with humans, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's weird. Two humans lock gazes and there's this sense of connection, sense of openness or an attempt to dominate. Uh, numerous studies have revealed that, uh, that it, that it has various influences over trust, persuasion. A 2011 study even showed that eye contact can serve as an invitation to mimicry, hmm. which, um, which ha- has an impact on the way we learn, but also, uh, potentially on how, um, people with autism struggle to grasp when they are expected to copy the actions of another person. Oh, yeah. Yeah, certainly. I, I mainly think of the sort of, quote, science of eye contact because I used to teach public speaking, and mm-hmm. it's a big part of that. Like, how much eye contact should you have with your audience? Um, where should you be moving your eyes through the audience? Should you just stare at one person? Obviously not. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of there's a lot of rules to it to be an effective public speaker. Right. But but. Related to that, there's there's also this mix of a continuing study into how uh, direct eye contact influences our, our speaking abilities. Yeah. But also there's a, a fair amount of sort of folk mythology. About oh, it yeah. As well. yeah. For instance, the whole idea that you should make direct eye contact when trying to convince somebody of something. Yes. Be it in a speech or whatever. There was actually a 2013 University of Freiburg study that found that direct eye contact makes skeptical listeners less likely to change their minds. Yeah, I believe it. So it's just it's like, oh, you're. You're boring into me with your with your ideas and your creepy eyes. I'm just going to shut you out. I I, I remember I, there, I don't have them in the notes here, but I remember reading studies that like have quantified the exact amount of seconds that human beings can look at each other in the eyes before it becomes so uncomfortable that they just immediately <laughs> shut down. Yeah. But the crazy part, though, right, is that that if you've ever made eye contact with a dog or a cat or a zoo animal, yeah. then you felt that interspecies connection as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I look, that's funny that you, you bring that up because, you know, I have two dogs. I hang out with them all the time and, uh, look them in the eyes all the time. A lot longer than a human and I would be able to look each other uh-huh. in the eyes. But I think it's because the dogs are connecting differently, but it still means something to them. Yeah, yeah. I have the same experience with our cat who, like, who I know, you know, I do not, this cat especially, I do not anthropomorphize too much. Right. Like she is, she's a monster who attacks my feet. Yeah. And, uh, and just came around at the long, wrong point in our lives. <laughs> I mean, I, I love her. She's wonderful, no. but she's kind of, kind of a wreck. Uh, b- both my cats are similar, <laughs> but you make eye contact with them and it's like, Oh, it's like, I know that we have totally different minds and we, and totally different brains, yeah. totally different views of the world. And yet right now we're sharing this profound connectivity. Mm-hmm. You're staring into eyes and you have no word for eyes. All right. You can just go down the rabbit hole. On it. Yeah. But at, at the basic, right, like the, the the bedrock here is that when you when two creatures make eye contact, there's this idea that one has been seen, that one is being seen, that one is you're, you're no, not hiding from that other creature. The other creature is aware. And then what comes next? Mm-hmm. So th- there are two main distinctions in what should come next. First, matching up the uh, with, with the idea of the weeping angels and uh, and topiary animals and SCP-173, there's this reality that. Certain creatures depend on stealth to acquire their prey. 
And if if they know that you see them, that is going to take away their advantage. They right. can, they are stealth hunters. They are surprise um, predators. And if they don't have that surprise, then they may back off. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I can't help but think of these attacks in uh, in XCOM uh, uh, terms. For oh, okay. Who's a, who's yeah, video games. games. I, that was I was immediately thinking of video game, different video game. But mm-hmm. yeah, when you're trying to sneak up on somebody. Yeah, or D and D as well, where you have a bonus. Right. Uh, there's a damage bonus or an attack bonus to a sneak attack, mm-hmm. like. In video games, like, yeah, if, if it's a, a video games role playing, if the stakes are high enough, that surprise attack can make all the difference. Right. Uh, but, but, it, but, you know, within the game, it's still a game, right? Well, for predators, it's, uh, it's even more important because first of all, nothing beats a sure thing, right? Or yeah. even a, a near sure thing. If an attack, but if an attack does not go as exactly planned, a number of consequences can occur. So the prey might get away, in which case you've lost energy, you've lost time. Other prey in the area might be alerted to your presence and they're frightened away. Worse still, an alert prey animal could have the chance to counterattack yeah. and inflict damage. And that kind of uh, injury can prove deadly. Cheetahs, for instance, rarely go after larger prey like an ostrich. There are some very interesting examples where they do develop strategies to, to do that. But for the most part, they don't because while the payoff for catching that ostrich is wonderful, if you get, if they get injured, it basically can mean starvation because they are a high speed predator and a limping cheetah is not going to eat. Yeah, this reminds me of uh, a video that I shot here for work a couple weeks ago about killer whales and humpback whales. Uh-huh. There's a similar thing going on in that killer whales uh, try to sneak up and take out uh, humpback whale calves. But now humpback whales have started to fight back uh, to the point that humpback whales will actually interfere with killer whale attacks on other animals. Like they're saving seals from uh, killer whale attacks. Uh, and this, go watch the video, but there's a lot of science to it, trying to figure out what's going on there. In, exactly to this point, the killer whales are expending all this energy, and then the humpbacks just basically pummel them down uh, to make sure that they stay away. And they're basically teaching them a lesson, like, yeah. don't go after our children. Yeah, uh, and certainly I, I, I have a hard time... Uh, sympathizing with the uh, the mammal eating killer whales. Uh, yeah, of course they, they got to eat somehow. Yeah, but yeah, that's true. But then you have the fish eating killer whales. <clears throat> yeah, where in my household, my four year old is very is very into into nature right now, and he yeah. likes killer whales. But he's very firm that he only likes fish. Eating oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Despite the fact that the uh, there's a particular uh, to tie back into viewing prey. Yeah, uh, killer whales that uh, that prey on seals will do this thing called spy hopping. Oh, and uh, my son's very intrigued by that. And this is where they'll 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 they'll, they'll poke their heads out of the water and uh-huh. kind of like uh, peek over. Oh, yeah. The top yeah. and see what the uh, their prey is up to. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe if that seal <laughs> just uh, made direct eye contact with the killer whale, it would swim away. Yeah, that's right. Now, that's one possibility, right? right. If you know if you know that a predator is after you, just make eye contact with it at all times. It's great. But you're that's going to be quite a resource drain. You can't constantly be on the yeah. lookout for predators. So the uh, the next best tactic, or perhaps the better tactic, is to fool your enemies into thinking someone's watching you all the time. And we actually see countless examples of this uh, in the, the evolution of eye spots the, across various species. 
So these are just, you know, dots on a creature that look like eyes. Now, to be clear, not all eye spots are there to mimic watching eyes. Sometimes they're there to fool a predator into attacking a less vulnerable part of the animal. You know, don't attack my head, attack my rump. Right. Or they play into mate selection. Uh, but in some cases, yes, eye spots definitely serve as anti-predator adaptations. And we also see examples of the strategy's effectiveness uh, outside of natural adaptation. For instance, in India, you have individuals who... Uh, happen to, to live and work in Bengal tiger country, and they've long reported success with these wooden human masks that they wear on the back of their heads. Oh, yeah. With wide open eyes that uh, the idea here is that the tiger will try and stealth attack them, but it sees this face staring back at them. Mm. And so they realize, oh, well, my percentage, my, my percentage to hit is less. I'm not going to take the risk. <laughs> um, and, and the, you know, various animal species have evolved eye spots that in many cases may serve to protect them from creeping predators, as I already mentioned. Uh, currently, there's this really cool uh, project. Australian conservation biologist Dr. Neil Jordan is experimenting with the use of painted on eye spots, painted in just black paint. Oh, yeah. To uh, grazing cattle. And the idea here is to protect them from lion attacks mm-hmm. because lions end up attacking cattle uh, and then they, the humans counterattack at least all this violence. And then the, the lions are already endangered anyway. It's a bad situation for everyone. Uh, but uh, so far, he has reported uh, a fair amount of uh, success with this. So he uh, holds a position with the Botswana Predator Conservation Trust. And he recently held a 10-week trial of the strategy, painting eyes on one-third of a 62-cattle herd. Three unpainted cows wound up as lion chow, but none of the eye cows fell to predation. So uh, re- correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't we do a now we video did. on this? Was it you who hosted that me. one? Okay, yeah. yeah. So Which is why it's fresh, fresh in, in your mind. mind. Yeah. yeah, I remember this from a couple of weeks ago. So yeah. yeah, we have a small video out there that you can go check out at How Stuff Works Now. They're going to uh, do a follow-up on it. And, oh, yeah. Uh, hopefully we'll see the results of that in the... Um, the the weeks and months ahead, but yeah. uh, you know they're going to use um, GPS cattle trackers, etc., to really see how effective this uh, this strategy is. Mm. But it does drive home the fact that yes, there are predatory creatures where if they know that you're watching, they will back they will back off or they will they will they will hold off their attack. However, that doesn't mean the direct eye contact with your specimen. Uh, is always a good thing. There are also plenty of examples where it will force uh, violent uh, uh, actions out of the other species. I mean, essentially, you're making eye contact with another animal. If they are, if 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 they might see you as prey, they're going to hold off their attack. But if they think that you are the predator, if they think you might be the aggressor, they may just go ahead and counterattack. Mm-hmm. So, dogs, for instance. They key into human eye movements. There have been a number of studies about this. They're able to track our eye movements and infer intent. And this has also been documented in in other species, primates, goats, dolphins, seals, uh, even some tortoises. But, of course, dogs that that feel especially threatened can actually be provoked into attacking via eye contact. Um, And I imagine anyone who's ever spent a lot of time around dogs, especially if you're around a dog that is is nervous, is is already feels threatened, Mm -hmm. like you most adults – I think, no, not to just go and, like, get in its face and stare at it. Right, yeah. However, according to a 2007 New, New Zealand Medical Journal report, um, this I, this actually can also be one of the reasons that, that young children are the ones who uh, are often victims of dog attacks when you have one of these threatened animals. Ah. I mean, on one hand, yes, the, the child is going to be smaller, more on the, the dog's scale. Yeah. There's, there's more of a possibility for... Um, for for more grievous injuries because of the attack, 
but also they say that a child is going to be less likely to avert their gaze. Okay. Uh, so this is like the Cujo lesson of science, yeah. right? Like how, <laughs> Cujo is a different situation, but I, I can't remember back to that book or the movie if there's points where they just make direct eye contact with it. Yeah, I don't stops. recall either. Yeah. But, now, but there's a kid, right? It's the mom and the kid. Yeah, they're like stuck in a car, yeah, I think. I never yeah. read or saw it, so I can't I can't comment too much on Cujo. However, I did see the movie Congo, in which there are <laughs> yeah. a number of uh, human gorilla interactions. Yeah. And that's, of course, in a well-known case as well. Like if you encounter a gorilla in the wild, yeah. don't make direct eye contact with it because you're going to enrage it. Right, right. And, uh, and this is this is actually, you know, pretty well proven. In fact, uh, back in 2007, uh, the Rotterdam Zoo engaged in a wonderful reversal of the aforementioned uh, tiger fooling masks. They they gave all these uh, these visitors to the zoo shades, like little paper shades mm-hmm. that look like averted eyes. Oh, so they're they're super goofy looking because oh yeah, there's pictures here in yeah. our notes. Wow. Okay, so it looks like you're looking the other direction, but you're looking straight at the gorilla. So that the gorilla doesn't what like run toward the the yeah glass because because people were you know you're there to see the gorilla you stare yeah. at the gorilla and if the stare gorilla stares back yeah. sees you staring yeah. then then it's going to enrage the gorilla it's going to upset the animal etc uh, so even discounting actual human gorilla physical interaction yeah you don't want these creatures to be disrupted more than than they already are oh, in yeah. this artificial environment yeah especially in the wake of the whole Harambe incident this yeah. seems like something that would make a lot of sense for most zoos to uh, implement. Yeah, but I will, to go back to SCP-173, would not make sense, I think, to wear these in the presence of that specimen. Okay. Because that would mean, even though you are making direct eye contact with it, it thinks you are not, and it might attack and strangle you. Yeah, it seems like what you should do with SCP-173 is paint your body... Uh, or your clothes with eyeballs all over it that yes. are pointing directly forward. Yeah, so that's... just in case you blink, it still <laughs> thinks that you're looking at it. Yeah, I would I would imagine that would be a, a, a decent um, addition to the um, containment procedures. Containment procedures. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, m- the first one that I have is SCP-87, and it is also referred to as the stairwell. Ooh, the entity itself is just a platform staircase of 13 steps uh, that has a platform in the middle that rotates 180 degrees to another staircase, right? So it's two staircases like we we know from like apartment buildings. Uh-huh. But the bottom one just leads into total darkness. And after 1.5 flights of stairs, the staircase limits your visual range. Even if you bring a light source with you, it won't always work. In fact, any light source that's over 75 watts has its excess light absorbed by the stairwell. Ooh. Subjects have reported hearing distressed children uh, when they're on the stairs below the initial platform and on into the darkness. And the staircase's depth seems to be unmeasurable and infinite. So it reminds me of House of Leaves. Yeah, I was just thinking... Uh, sometimes, however, explorers who have gone, you know, very far down the stairs, they all of a sudden run into a face with no pupils, no nostrils and no mouth. So it just kind of pops up. It's like the jump scare of this, of the stairwell. Okay. Um, doesn't seem to hurt people. It just goes boop. And then (laughs) it sounds like something you would encounter in a Miyazaki film. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It looks like it, too. Yeah. They have a little image on the on the SCP-87 page. So. All right. This one fascinated me. 
and made me think about light absorption and want to understand a little bit more about how it worked so I could try to extrapolate out maybe what's going on with this staircase. Okay. Because, again, it is a, a staircase that goes to a lightless darkness that yeah. may be haunted and possibly inhabited by a weird Miyazaki creature. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So what's the deal? How is light absorbed? Well, uh, the way that light is absorbed can be used to identify different types of gas in space because atoms and molecules absorb it at specific wavelengths. So how the spectra of light is absorbed can tell us a lot about the energy levels of the atoms and molecules that we're observing or about the number that are present. So perhaps this staircase has a some unique attributes regarding its uh, atomic structure. Let's consider atoms for a second to try to figure this out. They've got a positively charged nucleus that's made up of protons and neutrons, and they're orbited by negatively charged electrons. Usually, the number of protons and electrons are equal, so the atom has a neutral charge. Now, I'm going to skip a lot of physics here, okay? There was a lot to read about this, <laughs> and I I think it's it's over my head, and, and I don't want to bore our, our audience. But if an atom has energy added to it that can excite it by removing an electron, this is a process called ionization. And excitation is temporary, though when the atom drops back to its ground state, it gives off excess energy, which is usually light. Okay, so this is how light can be generated. Okay. Each atom emits a unique fingerprint on the light spectrum. And so that's how we're able to identify these different gases based on their atomic structure, what elements they might be. Now, visible light is a type of electromagnetic radiation. Light is composed of photons. And photons are just packets of energy that move at the speed of light. But if they're stopped, they cease to exist. So if a photon strikes an atom, it can give up its energy under the right circumstances. And in this process, the photon ceases to exist and the electron gets excited. This is absorption. This is when light gets absorbed, okay? Absorption occurs at specific energies in specific wavelengths. And this is how we identify these gases that light is passing through in space. Depending on what they are, certain wavelengths will be removed from the light, which results in dark lines. That's what they're referred to within the spectrum. So let's apply this to SCP-87. Again, this feels like a Doctor Who episode to me, like <laughs> like this creeping darkness, and they're trying to figure out how to get past it. So I looked into the math of figuring out how many photons are emitted per second by a 75-watt bulb. Uh, it's possible to figure this out as a chemistry problem. That's beyond our scope here. I'm not going to walk all the way through the math, but I found someone else who did the answer for us, and I think it's 3.11486E plus 19 photons per second. So, based on what we know about light absorption on the atomic level, it sounds like the stairwell has some kind of element in it. Maybe it's a gas that absorbs photons above that level of 3.11486E plus 19. Okay. Then, something changes about the stairwell's atoms so they no longer absorb light and they create dark lines in the spectrum. Maybe the electrons in this darkness area are just returning to their ground state? Or is there something altering the wavelength of light as it's entering this area? So another possibility is the Doppler effect. This is the phenomenon of a shift in the frequency or wavelength of light caused by motion at its source, right? 
So this can shift the spectrum towards blue or red ends, creating different hues within light. And it doesn't seem likely to me that this is the case because it would mean, first of all, that there's something in the stairwell that would be moving the light source. You'd think you'd be aware of that. Maybe it's maybe it's the distressed children or the Miyazaki monster. Uh-huh. But but you don't seem to see it at that point. The other reason is even if blue and red were shifted, you'd still have visible light. Uh, from the remaining photons. This seems to create total darkness. So so based on what you've said so far, it sounds like the best case here is some sort of gas yeah. combined with maybe some sort of metamaterial that's coating the, the, just the structures itself themselves? I think so, yeah. I think that's my best guess at, was, at, at what is going on here with the stairwell. Now, regarding the weird face and the sound of the distressed child <laughs> and the infinite stairwell, I'm, I'm at a total loss. My my best guess there is maybe because the stairwell is infinite, the generated photons from the light source can't reach its end, mm-hmm. even at light speed, because it's infinite. But I'm not sure. My best guess, though, is what you just said, that there's there's something going on with the amount of photons that are generated per second uh, and how much can be absorbed by whatever material is in there. So the stairwell is, is generating something, a field, some kind of gas. Hmm. Okay, Robert's got another one here, and if uh, you have also listened to our Frankenstein episode that's been released this week, this will be familiar. It is the homunculus. Yes, and I'm going to try not to uh, repeat myself on the two episodes too much here. So uh, if, if you have any questions remaining about homunculi, tune in to our Frankenstein episode as well. So this is SCP-30. And here's the description. SCP-30 appears as a hairless, genderless, grave-toned human, 71 centimeters, 28 inches in height, and weighing 12.70 kilograms, two British stones in antiquated measure. (laughs) Its solid blue eyes lacked discernible irises or pupils and and resemble small cut sapphires. SCP-30 possesses an androgynous voice with a pronounced English accent not currently identifiable as specific to any modern region. It is able to converse, read, and write in ancient Greek, Latin, Italian, English, Spanish, and Portuguese, as well as two additional languages that have not yet been identified, despite SCP-30's insistence that they should be, quote, common knowledge. (laughs) SCP-30 also demonstrated knowledge of physics, chemistry, astronomy, mathematics, and horticulture, roughly equivalent to that of a 17th century academic. In addition, SCP-30 has demonstrated knowledge of these topics along research lines that do not appear in the historical record. These alternative or entirely unknown approaches to research in the natural science are one source of SCP-30's utility in consultation. Okay. So this immediately reminds me, you know, the Hellboy universe, right? Oh, yes. Uh, what Norman the homunculus. Uh, Roger. 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 Yeah. yeah, it immediately makes me think of Roger the homunculus, uh, which... Uh, if anybody out there is not familiar with Hellboy in that universe, there's the BPRD, which is very much like the SCP, actually. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Roger is one of their discoveries, but he's also an agent. Yeah. Uh, and he's he's a homunculus. Yeah. And that's that is uh, that's what we have here in SCP-30, uh, an homunculus, a homunculus uh, that uh, does seem to have uh, a level of intelligence and alchemical understanding that surpasses what typically passes for uh, an homunculus yeah. in most texts. Again, more in common with with Roger, who uh, is very much uh, an intelligent individual. Well, I like the idea that these things are built and then they're 
effectively immortal. So they're hanging around for a long time and they're just absorbing knowledge like a sponge. So of course <laughs> they'd be smart. Yeah. If you let one, one live long enough. Yeah. Um, so, uh, homunculi are one of my favorite subjects. They're, I mean, they're you know, creepy, weird little goblinoids that are yeah. made by wizards. I mean, what's not to love? <laughs> yeah. They're great. Um, it's an artificial humanoid created through alchemy, which, uh, again, is that 16th through 18th century hodgepodge of occultist lore, superstition, and pre-scientific chemistry. So it's not quite a human. Uh, the creature is a rational animal, as it, as it often was described, and, uh, and you know, another fictional page in humanity's dream of mastering life and death. But one of the cool things is that when you start getting into the text, of course, you get into any alchemical text and there's all sorts of weirdness and absurdity. Yeah. Um, and as well as stuff that seems to be code for, uh, for other secrets. It gets, uh, you know, very Byzantine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, one, one that I was looking at in particular is the Libra, the Libra Vakai, the, the book of the cow. And it lays <laughs> out some rather grotesque and confusing instructions in the art of do-it-yourself homunculi brewing. And um, uh, Meki van der Gluck's abominable mixtures, the Libra in the medieval West, or the dangers and attractions of natural magic, really lays out some excellent commentary on what it all means. That sounds like the kind of book that you would find at um, Hogwarts Academy in the yeah, library. Indeed. So I'm just going to briefly roll through uh, the recipe that is presented for the creation of homunculi. Uh, do not attempt this at home. You can, but you're going to reach the point where the um, ingredients do not exist. Mm. So good luck with it. Uh, so, yeah, you're going to create one homunculi. Uh, you're going to need ma- a magician's semen. Okay. <laughs> you're going to need animal blood. You're going to need, need a cow. You're going to need a, you need some sulfur, a magnet. Uh, but here's where it starts getting complicated. First, a large glass or lead vessel. All right, that's going to be a little expensive. Mm. Then you're going to need green tutuya, tutia, which is a sulfide of iron. Okay. All right, you're going to have to hunt around for that. And oh yeah, you're going to need the sunstone, which is a, a mystical phosphorescent elixir. This is always the case with uh, with alchemists, right? Yeah. It's like, uh, here's a bunch of like stuff that you put in this casserole, and then oh yeah, you need this magical item that nobody yeah. knows where it is yet, like yeah. a philosopher's yeah, stone. Yeah. By the way, you're going to need the philosopher's stone. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, what, or some other magical element that doesn't quite exist. Right. So you mix the semen and the sunstone and you inseminate a cow. Okay. Right? And you carefully plug the animal up with the sunstone. You smear the animal with, uh, with the, the blood of another animal. You place the artificially inseminated animal then inside a dark house where the sun never shines. Makes sense. Yeah. Then you feed the cow uh, exclusively on the blood of another animal. Then you prepare a powder of the ground sunstone, sulfur, magnet, and green tutia, and then you stir with the sap of a white willow. Now, at this point, the text indicates that the cow should give birth and the resulting unformed substance should be placed in the powder that you just prepared, which will cause the amorphous blob to grow human skin. And then you have a newborn homunculus in a large glass or lead container, depending on which one you used. And the creature will become crazy hungry in this time. So you need to feed it uh, the blood of its decapitated mother for seven days. And in this time, it should develop into a fully grown, tiny, grotesque humanoid with some fragment of a human soul. All right. I think I think I just got the idea for uh, season five of Monster Science, (laughs) how Dr. Anton Jessup can introduce the homunculus. You got to do it like a cooking show. Oh, yeah. It's like a. Uh, as if a uh, Guy Fieri is making a homunculus. Oh, I bet he has. I bet he has made one before. Uh, the, the crazy thing, though, is that 
you know, we get wrapped up in these ideas of like the creation of life, you know, the Frankenstein myth that we, uh, we, we discussed at length in our, in our other episode this week. But the creation of the homunculi is not necessarily a means, um, you know, it's, it's not necessarily the end product. The idea then is that you have, now that you have this homunculi, you're going to use it to create other things. Right. So you're essentially going to render it down, uh, it, and, and use it in other recipes. <laughs> so, uh, in the, in the text that I mentioned earlier, they say, quote, if it is placed on a white cloth with a mirror in its hands, uh, and, uh, and suffumigated with a mixture of human blood and other ingredients, the moon will appear to be full on the last day of the month. Right. Well, that's useful yeah. if you need to get around at night. Like maybe you need that for another spell. I don't know. Hmm. If it is decapitated and its blood is given to a man to drink, the man will assume the form of a bovine or a sheep. Yeah. But if he is anointed with it, he will have the form of an ape. So this is like some Circe 101 stuff right here. <laughs> now, this is where it starts getting uh, potentially useful. If the homunculus is fed for 40 days in a dark house on a diet of blood and milk, and then its guts are extracted from its belly and rubbed onto someone's hands and feet, he may walk on water or travel around the world in the winking of an eye. Kept alive for a year and then placed in a bath of milk and rainwater, the homunculi will tell things that happen far away. Now that, that's your homunculi horror movie right there. (laughs) Like you base it around that premise and then somebody stumbles across the dark house. Yeah. And they mess up this uh, experiment. It does create an even more horrific view of alchemy. Like not only are yeah. they creating horrible little abominations, but then you're tormenting the abomination to pull off various other sorcerous schemes. Oh yeah, well it gets back to what we talked about in the Frankenstein episode, the ethics of creating life from yeah. nothing. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, it, it is, we discussed in that, like, we have this basic idea, you know, the basic, um, human ability to, to imbue unliving things with life. You know, you paint mm. a picture and then that picture becomes the thing to a certain extent. So we kind of create homunculi every day, but it takes something like the true mythic homunculus or SCP-30 to drive home just how weird that really is. Mm. All right, so my next one is a far step from a homunculi, although, well, we just don't know because this is SCP-51, which is cataloged as unknown because Uh. no one knows what it is. And in fact, no one can remember that it even exists half the time. No one can describe what it is or its appearance. Somehow it erases any memory of itself from a subject's mind. They can't describe it. Even those who try to sketch a copy of a photograph are unable to remember what it looks like. Watching it on closed circuit cameras causes amnesia. And it's basically called the self-keeping secret. No one remembers how it was brought to SCP or who built its containment room. There's a lot in the in the file on it, on the containment unit and the very particular ways it has to be contained. But the most important thing is that all personnel have to stay at least 50 meters from the center of the room. Otherwise, they just forget that it exists. Oh, I I, I love this. It's very it, it sounds like something Borges would have come up yeah. with. You know, it's like it's yeah. a paradox. It's a thought experiment. Uh, even those who talk about it, just the act of talking about it, seem to forget that it existed shortly thereafter. Huh. Okay, so let's yeah, what, get, what's the possible scientific uh, tie-in? Here? Well, we can look at amnesia 
or how to erase memories. And there are a lot of ways to erase human memories. And in fact, we're making a lot of headway with it right now in modern science. But let's do a quick look at amnesia. What is it? Well, it's a loss of memory from physical or psychological conditions. Usually we're talking about a head trauma, but sometimes disease or emotional trauma contributes to it as well. Now, given the circumstances of SCP-55, I'm assuming it has to do with emotional trauma. Like it's so emotionally traumatizing to look at it Uh or even talk about it or think about it that your brain just just erases it. (laughs) But I don't know. Um, Or it could also be reaching in with spores or something and physically manipulating your brain. They don't mention any uh, traces of physical signs, but that is possible Mm. as well. Uh, It could be a disease or maybe it's some kind of physical manifestation that's localized to a 50 meter radius. I don't know. Um, but SCP-55 doesn't seem to be causing what's known as anterograde amnesia because people can form new memories. Uh, people with anterograde amnesia cannot form new memories. Okay. Retrograde amnesia seems to be what's going on here. That's when you're impeded from retrieving your previous memories. If it's any kind of psychogenic amnesia, then it could be dissociative or it could be like a fugue state, possibly as a result of post-traumatic stress disorder. So I'm thinking, again, it's causing such emotional stress Mm -hmm. that people just completely forget about it. The reported symptoms, however, don't seem to indicate that the creation of a dissociative identity is going on here. So it's not like you go in and you see it and you create an entire identity while you're seeing it and then you're unable to recall the memories of your identity that interacts with SCP-55. It's probably not a head trauma, like I was saying, because there, we'd think we there would be, yeah, yeah, there'd be evidence, unless it's electric. But even electroconvulsive treatments usually lead to anterograde amnesia and not retrograde. So, okay, you could possibly treat this as memory loss with drugs that use active neuroepinephrine. But would the subject recall immediately shut down their memories again? I don't know. What if they took the drugs, though? What if they took drugs that limited their perception skills while they were in contact with SCP-55? So maybe then they'd be able to remember it? Not sure. Um I looked to an article called Wiping the Slate is Playing with Memory Humane or Is It Just Wrong from Psychology Today. And it's it covers the the broad spectrum of ways in which we're able to start erasing memories today. Scientists have been using behavioral conditioning and drugs that alter memory consolidation on the molecular level to erase memories. They can delete memories in rats, but we haven't really figured out how to target specific memories yet. And there's three ways that they're doing it. Propranolol is a beta blocker that they use, and it can weaken the link between the facts of a memory and its emotional impact by blocking adrenaline and other substances that ignite our fear response. Another possibility is zeta inhibitor peptides. So what happens with these is they inhibit our PKM zeta enzymes so that they can't maintain or strengthen long-term memories in our brains. So for instance, rats that are injected with this will walk right into shock-rigged obstacles that they've previously learned to avoid. Uh, the last one is that our amygdalas seem to be able to be overwritten by genetically disarmed herpes. Uh, it infiltrates and cripples the neural networks in a human brain, but 
the current human application seems very far fetched to be able to like isolate specific memories such as SCP-55. Well, SCP-55 could be an alien with with some sort of space herpes. Maybe, yeah. or or maybe it's uh, just emitting propranolol or zeta inhibitors. Who knows? Hmm. Uh, let's look a little bit more at this. We've talked about this on the show before, especially with relation to PTSD and the use of MDMA to treat it. Because PTSD memories remain horribly intense, they're considered a disease of how memory works in, in the sense that they, they can't be forgotten. So PTSD subjects are actually often counseled to share their memories to try to help in the act of forgetting. But this actually rarely seems to help. Uh, however... I will acknowledge through our MDMA episodes, that does seem to help them if they take MDMA and then they go through counseling uh, because the MDMA helps them forget by associating those memories with trust and a lack of fear, as we've talked about in that. Uh, if you haven't listened to it, I highly recommend it, our, our two-parter on MDMA and the science behind it. This would, you know, thinking of it, of, of this uh, entity, the specimen, mm. uh, SBC-55, as, an, as a potential alien creature that emits some sort of psychoactive substance. Yeah. It, like clearly it's it's not emitting MDMA, but that would be a wonderful setup for some sort of science fiction. And maybe it's been oh, done yeah. before. An alien yeah. just to be in its presence without like a containment suit is to know pure euphoria and bliss. Like, right. Well, yeah, it automatic. It's like a like like using pheromone. Oh, you know what it's like? It's like um David Tennant's character on Jessica Jones. Oh, yeah. Uh, it creates Mr. trust. And yeah, the purple man, I believe. Kilgrave. Uh, yeah, it's like he's emitting, uh, something that makes you trust him and have a, a lack of fear, total <laughs> lack of fear. But I don't know if that's what's going on with SCP-55. Could be. Uh, memories themselves, let's remember this. <laughs> nope, I didn't mean to do that as a pun. Uh, they're not packets of data. They're not constant. The very act of remembering changes a memory itself. This model has been shown at a molecular level by neuroscientists. So therefore, Memories can be altered by other chemicals, specifically that those that inhibit protein synthesis. So if new proteins can't be created during the act of remembering, the original memory ceases to exist. So maybe SCP-55 is suppressing protein creation. Well, this, this would make sense because uh, based on what I've covered in the past on uh, potential memory erasure, like memories become susceptible to to tweaking, to treating, or yeah. erasure when they are recalled. Like if every, me- I always think of memories as like a clay sculpture. It's in a drawer, and anytime you get it out, that's when you end up changing the shape with your hands just by remembering yeah. it, and then you put it back in the drawer. If it's in the drawer, it's harder to get to. But if you retrieve it, if you're retrieving the memory, if you're engaged with the memory, then it's susceptible. Well, the thing about SCP-55 that makes it difficult to to quantify this way is it's somehow mimetic because even the very mention of it, like that somehow passes on this possible protein inhibition to other people. So they forget it, too. Hmm. Like if you've never even encountered it and I tell you about it, you'll forget about it. Uh, so perhaps the act of speaking about it somehow is passing along the protein suppression. I don't know. Like you get infected with this protein suppression and then speaking passes that along to another person. Not sure what's going on. If you couple the drugs mentioned that I mentioned above, uh, with what's known as reconsolidation memory therapy, you can get very specific about which memories you want to erase. In fact, if you inject 
a protein synthesis inhibitor in rats before they're exposed to reconsolidation, they can be trained to forget all their fear associations with something. So maybe what's going on is SCP-55 reconsolidates your memories about it while it's also emitting either protein inhibitors or one of these uh, chemicals. It's basically providing you with therapy about it while you're (laughs) interacting with it. And depending on the the ultimate nature of it, maybe this is a beneficial thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like it's like I know I'm horrible, and you can't really comprehend me without going mad. So I'm going to meet you halfway here. Right I'll, here, I'll give you some drugs, and I'll also <laughs> talk you through it. <laughs> uh, in 2014, there was a study where a team at Ricken MIT's Center for Neural Circuit Genetics they were able to alter bad memories in mice using something called optogenetics. They inserted genetically encoded light response responsive proteins into cells so they could pinpoint where in the mouse's brain a negative memory was formed. Then they used lasers to manipulate the neurons in the mouse brain so it forgot that memory completely. Another team in 2014 used xenon gas as an anesthetic on mice to modify their memory consolidation, and that inhibited their NMDA receptor brain activity in their brains, again, reducing fear reactions. So this is something that science is playing around with a lot right now. And every article I wrote read about it was like, yeah, it's not eternal sunshine of the spotless <laughs> mind, yada, yada, yada. But it seems like lasers, drugs, protein inhibitors, xenon gas, you name it. There are a lot of ways to biologically alter our brains so we forget things. So SCP-55 could be any combination of things uh, that you could either use chemicals or lasers or whatever. I'm going to go, though, with that it causes such emotional trauma that you don't remember it. The big question is, how is it transmittable? Like how does anybody out there? I'd love to know how could something like this be a transmittable uh, memory erasure? Uh, how about this? Maybe it's not so much transmitted. What if this is this entity is is something that has already been experienced by everyone. And therefore, ah. it's not so much that you're introducing me to the idea of it, but you're reintroducing it. And it, and any reintroduction to the specimen, either it's, it's actual, either an actual encounter or just discussion of it, of course, ends up self-deleting. So like, what if it, you know, what if it's God? Right. <laughs> and this, right. and you see this God right before you're born. Yeah. And then, and then you enter this world. So everyone has a, has a, has an existing memory. Or maybe if you want to go even more fanciful and psychedelic, like everyone has like a race memory of this entity. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That would make sense as well. Well, it's currently under containment, although <laughs> uh, probably 30 seconds after Robert and I uh, finish talking about this, we'll completely forget about SCP-55. We're going to talk about SCP-2584. Yes, SCP-2584. And this one... Uh, like like the last ep- uh, specimen we looked at, it's interesting because it represents a paradox. Here's the description. SCP-2584 is a species of snake that has been classified Oxyurinus oroboros. SCP-2584 has no head or tail, as its body forms a continuous closed loop. Otherwise, SCP-2584's tissue and anatomy is completely normal, save for its circular spine, circulatory system, and digestive tract. 
SCP-2584 SCP is able to achieve locomotion, but has no brain, sense of sight, hearing, taste, or smell, and thus is only capable of reflexive movements to flee from danger after injury or move towards warmer areas. Otherwise, instances tend to remain still or spin in place. So I'm just imagining it's a circular snake body with yeah. no head, no tail. But when it moves, it's just kind of rolling around like a hula hoop on the ground. Basically, yeah. yeah. Imagine a snake hula hoop. Yeah. And that's what this thing is. So it do, the, the description goes on to state that it doesn't it doesn't breathe. It depends on an unknown energy source. Okay. Again, it has no yeah, brain. Yeah, because it can't eat. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the its digestive tract seems to cycle the same matter continuously, but it's somehow able to gain metabolic energy with each cycle without ex without expending any of the nutrients. Hmm. And it reproduces via as osmosis into two hoops of an element. <laughs> okay. So uh, what we have here is... An, so they've actually got a room full of these things. It's not just one. I guess, or at least they have, you know, they have at least on one. Any, yeah. any given point. I don't know if they sell them in the SCP gift Maybe shop. Maybe the, the SCP employees use them as hula hoops for their kids. <laughs> they only keep one in the containment cell at a time. Because they're kind of like tribbles, right? Yeah. In that sense. Yeah. They seem to have no... They lack the... Uh, the necessary openings, right? Yeah, yeah. They, there's no re obvious reproductive capabilities. Yeah. So, so what we have here, and why this is, I think, interesting, is that you basically have an, an imaginative sci-fi send-up of the the mythical Ouroboros, mm. the tail-consuming serpent, which has been a potent symbol since ancient times. I mean, you see examples of it from, uh, you know, Neolithic uh, cultures. You see it in ancient Egypt. Um, it, it kind of it basically emerged in ancient times as basically a symbol or a motif. And then as human culture advances, we end up applying all sorts of different reads to what it might yeah. mean. Yeah. Uh, Plutarch, for instance, uh, when when it came around to his time, he uh, described it as uh, like this. He said, quote, it feeds upon its own body. Even so, all things spring from God and will be resolved into the deity again. So interpretations vary. They get increasingly more complex and spiritual. Um, in, in Hinduism, Ouroboros symbolism is sometimes uh, ties into Kundalini energy, the, 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 the Kundalini serpent. Right. Um, you see it in uh, South American art. Um, you, you see it in the, the in Gnostic beliefs. Uh, the Ouroboros is the soul of the world. It's um, so it goes be from just being this idea, almost this kind of, primitive childlike idea of like what if a snake bit its own tail what yeah. if a snake tried to eat its own tail and then it evolves into this paradoxical idea of something without beginning or end yeah it, it's um i've always thought of it as being both like a symbol of the circle of life which i guess you could see scp 2584 as being a perfect representation of yeah but but it's also like a uh, representative of just like the quixotic nature of doing things over and over again and yeah. expecting different results. Yeah, it's true. It 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 kind of depends what your your take on infinity is. Yeah, because you can look at the Ouroboros. Oh, that poor snake! It's constantly being eating eaten. Yeah. Or you can say, Oh, that snake! He's really got it made. It always has a meal. Yeah, he's never hungry. <laughs> because it also never. It's a glass half full kind yeah. of situation. <laughs> because I guess you can look at it too and say that the Ouroboros never vanishes and the Ouroboros doesn't yeah. just blink out of existence because it cannot digest itself hmm. fun fact from our uh, x-files episode oh, yeah? agent scully has one tattoo and it is the ouroboros oh wh where does she have the tattoo uh it's on the 
back of her neck, I think. Okay. Uh, and there's some implication that she may be immortal because she has it. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, that, that, again, there are ties to undying nature, yep. uh, uh, as we saw in that Plutarch quote. Um, you, you also see uh, other sort of mythical and folkloric creatures that come up from time to time. There's the, uh, the hoop snake, which was a creature from the lumberjack folklore of Wisconsin and Minnesota during the 19th and 20th century. The centuries, the, uh, the fearsome critters, as they were called. <laughs> and this was a snake that would bite its own tail and roll around on the ground, uh, like a, like a hula hoop. Mm. Um, but we also see some interesting scientific examples. So you'll, you'll obviously, you'll occasionally run across tales of auto cannibalism in snakes, of snakes actually biting or trying to eat their tail, particularly when you're dealing with snakes in captivity. But you, but you also have a few animals that engage in Ouroboros-like Actions. So there's the South African armadillo girdled lizard that actually bites its own tail, curls up, and uh, uses the bite to keep hold of its tail. Hmm. Uh, so it, it's a beautiful little creature. It, it doesn't roll around like this, but it just uses it a way to protect itself. But okay. it does bite onto its own tail. Yeah, it like maximizes its defensive capabilities. Yeah, and then you'll find other lizards and animals that curl up and sometimes even roll, but don't actually bite onto their tail. For instance, uh, Mount Lyle salamanders, they'll curl up and roll downhill, but there's no biting. Or okay, okay. But back to the specimen here. So... It, it, it becomes difficult to try and imagine how this creature could actually exist, right? Yeah. Because it's, um, it, it's an impossibility. It's a self-sustaining system, a perpetual mm. motion des- uh, machine. Uh, and of course, pe- perpetual motion des- machines cannot exist because of friction and energy dissipation. Like you can't make a machine that will work forever right. without having some energy input coming along and and charging it back up again. Likewise, even if you took out breathing concerns, lack of a brain, if you just had this hoop snake creature, this yeah. uh, like this specimen, and it had a meal in its belly going round and round, like how it couldn't draw on that meal forever. I mean, even if it were an everlasting gobstopper, right? It would, it, yeah, it could not sustain itself unless the the meal in its belly was like a a wormhole opening up to a like a food world. But no, th- these are similar questions. Like, you can't have the same meal digested eternally. It's going right. to break down. They're diminishing returns. And, uh, and likewise, SCP-2584, if it just has that one thing in its belly, it's not, I mean, how would that possibly work? Yeah. Some kind of food is being teleported into its belly from somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, we're faced with... Uh, Maybe another SCP is responsible for there this. There you go. If there is some sort of an SCP mouse yeah. that is eternally regenerating, perhaps through a wormhole, yeah. then this creature eats it at some point. But then how does how does it eat? It doesn't have a mouth. It would have... Uh, that's the, the wonderful yeah. nature of it. It's just a complete paradox. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it's certainly worth thinking about as an exercise in understanding, uh, anatomy mm-hmm. and, and definitely energy consumption too. That's for sure. <laughs> I guess the only, the only answer I can get for SCP-2584 is that it might be God. It, to go ah, back to Plutarch, yeah. this might be a manifestation of the mystery of the divine. Hmm. That is worth chewing on. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> I wonder what SCP- 2584 tastes like chicken, probably. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, the ethics of science, that leads us to our last SCP specimen, 231, which is referred to as 
special personnel requirements. I really like this one because it leads us to talking about uh, the Milgram experiment and a lot about the ethics and sort of point of scientific experimentation. Here's the description of SCP-231. It's a, it's a girl, possibly a baby, that has to be subjected to something called the Montauk Procedure. Now, we're never told what the details of this are, but it sounds awful. Uh, most of the detail in the description goes into the requirements for the personnel that are attending to SCP-231. They have to undergo heavy psychological testing. They have to be unmarried, have no children, and express total loyalty to the SCP. And if they express any sympathy to the subject, they are immediately transferred off the project. When they're on site, they wear helmets to conceal their identity and voice. And basically, SCP-231, whatever it is, is strapped down all the time, except for when they're subjected to this horrible procedure, once every 24 hours. The subject doesn't actually seem to be that important to the entry. The story goes that they're the seventh child born out of some kind of cult organization, that the first six subjects were its siblings and they were killed in various results from this procedure, the containment, this Montauk procedure. The personnel that work on this are told that if they don't subject SCP-231 to this horrible Montauk procedure, it will result in the end of the world. So some of the personnel also have their memory altered, maybe by SCP-55, we're not sure, uh, but they basically forget that they ever performed their duties in relation to this project. This, uh, pop culture-wise, immediately made me think of Stranger Things. Now, I don't want to, I don't want to spoil Stranger Things at all, but, uh, you know, the original, uh, title for the show was Montauk. Huh. Um, so I wonder, I, I don't know which came first, SCP-231 or the TV show, or maybe they're somehow connected. Like maybe the anonymous author is one of the people behind Stranger Things. But, um, yeah, the show was originally called Montauk and, uh, the idea of this secret project that's working, you know, doing terrible, unethical things to a girl. It's interesting. It brings us right around to the Milgram experiment. And the reason why is one of the things they say about uh, this SCP is that all of the personnel have to pass the Milgram experiment, <laughs> meaning that they have to take it all the way. Uh, if you are unfamiliar with the Milgram experiment, it is one of the most controversial and pu- highly publicized psychological studies ever conducted, I would say. Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely up there. We've uh, we've touched on it in past episodes before. Um it's anytime you see a list of like the the most the weirdest most unethical experiments, it tends to to show up right at the top. Yeah. So if you've never heard of it, this is how it goes. It was performed in 1961 and 1962 and it was designed to measure the extent to which ordinary people would inflict pain on other people when they are instructed to do so by an authoritative figure. Uh, it was very controversial because the people were put in these situations without informed consent. And it was influenced by accounts Milgram heard of Nazi atrocities. He wanted to measure how willing the average person would be to obey institutionalized authority. And he actually received a grant from the National Science Foundation to do this, conducted the experiments at Yale from 61 to 62. 
Now, you may have heard of this in relation to the phrase, the banality of evil. Uh, It's often attributed to this study, but it was actually coined by Hannah Arendt in her book, Eichmann in Jerusalem. She was reporting on Adolf Eichmann's trial in 1961. Eichmann was a Nazi commander who helped orchestrate the Holocaust. Now, Arendt's theory was that Eichmann wasn't a sociopath. He was just an average person following orders. Milgram speaks to these ideas in his book, Obedience to Authority, which is sort of the publication of his uh, his results. But he published it much later. I want to say like 10 years later. So basically the question raised by the experiment is, could basically any of us uh, be a part of some atrocity chain yeah. if we were just in the in the position to, to receive those orders? Exactly. And this is how the experiment worked. There were three people in each situation, a supervisor, a learner and a teacher. However, the only subject that was actually under scrutiny was the teacher. The other two people were just actors. The teacher was uninformed about the true nature of the experiment. And the supervisor would tell them that what they were doing was determining whether punishment in the form of electric shocks would promote learning. So usually the person playing the role of the learner was in another room and the teacher was seated in front of an apparatus that would pretend to shock the learner with somewhere between 15 and 450 volts. The teacher was then instructed to give a long multiple choice test to the learner. And every time they had an incorrect answer, the teacher was supposed to administer the shock, upping the voltage 15 volts each time. No one was actually shocked in this experiment. The learner just pretended that they were being shocked until it reached 315 volts. They would scream and, you know, pretend like they were in agony. At 315 volts, though, they would just stop making sounds. Like, presumably they passed out or something. Uh, And I think a lot of these instances, they were in a separate room and, and they couldn't see each other. Right. If they refused, if the, if the learner refused, the experiment stopped. But uh, the supervisor usually would direct them to just keep continuing. Otherwise, they would keep going until they reached 450 volts. Uh, now, let's be clear. The truth was always revealed to the teacher afterwards. They always told them what was actually going on. Um, and the results were as such. 65% of the participants kept going all the way to 450 volts. None of them insisted on stopping before 300 volts. Whether or not uh, Milgram used women or men in this experiment did not change the results. But when the physical proximity increased, the obedience factor decreased slightly, meaning when the teacher and the learner were closer to each other, they were less likely uh, to go all the way with the shocks. This one is where it gets really scary. When a teacher was joined by actors posing as other teachers, their conformity rose all the way to 90 percent. Oh, wow. So, okay, the reason why we all know about this experiment is it's been highly criticized for its ethics, specifically that it did not supply the subjects with informed consent, and it exposed them to overly stressful and embarrassing situations. Milgram, however, defended it, and he said, look, we've got this survey, it's an exit survey that we do with with everybody that's done it. 84% of those people were glad to have participated. Some of them even said, by doing the experiment, it made them more ethically sensitive. 
Now, we talked about this in the Frankenstein episode. We were sort of uh, pretending, what if Frankenstein had to apply for an IRB? This is one of those studies that led to the Belmont report and having to uh, have IRB approval before you do any kind of scientific experiment in an institutional yeah, setting. Yeah, because you don't want to conduct an experiment that is putting people through the emotional ringer. Yeah. Unless, I mean, unless there's you know, full uh, you know knowledge of it going in, which which is... Part of the experiment is that they did not have that knowledge. Exactly. Uh, this is why the American Psychological Association formulated its principles for research with humans. This is why it requires all research to receive approval by IRBs. Uh, in fact, uh, an IRB did approve social psychologist Jerry M. Berger to obtain permission to partially replicate the experiment. But he stopped at 150 volts when the actor began to scream. However, his results up until that point were similar to Milgram's. So th- this is something that's worth considering. And in fact, I, I want, once upon a time pitched a show here at How Stuff Works that would would be entirely about studies like this. This study could never be done legally today. And that that's a good thing. I think we can all agree mm-hmm. on that. And yet it is incredibly influential on our understanding of human psychology. Our overall knowledge of things has has uh, improved, I think you could say, based on this study. So what other lessons have we learned from unethical science and what lessons are we missing? And then let's get back to this SCP like. What is it ultimately about? I don't think it's about the girl. It's more about the personnel, right? It's about the horror that is this great social significance of, of what human beings are capable of. Well, and supposedly they're saving the world. Yeah, exactly. This, right? That's what they're told. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And that's where it gets really interesting. There's there's a couple studies here I want to get into. Uh, I have two studies I want to talk about that are related to Milgram that have recently been published. The first is called Why People Kill, and it was published in the Chronicle of Higher Education. Uh, it reminds us as well of another uh, infamous case, the Stanford Prison Experiment in oh, 1971. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with that one, psychologist Philip G. Zimbardo randomly assigned Stanford University students to play roles as prisoners and guards. Within days, the people who were playing guards were abusing the prisoners. The prisoners themselves became passive. The study actually had to be called off. There's another study as well that I was unfamiliar with that's referenced in here. Muzaffar Sheriff's 1954 study on how competition can escalate into conflict. He divided adolescent boys into two teams and he pitted them against each other at certain tasks. Uh, it also had to be called off because violence started between the boys. So what's going on here? Why are we circling around back to these projects? Because it feels like this, and this is the argument of this paper. It feels like we're at a time where we're very concerned about violence and the possibility that good people will do bad things, right? So think of the presidential election right now and like the rhetoric that's being tossed around about what people are capable of and how we have to defend ourselves against them. So this kind of stuff is in the air. People are thinking about it a lot. There's very apocalyptic thoughts in people's minds about what we're all capable of doing to one another. Oh, I, well, I mean, I would say that that is generally more of the uh like the standard human experience and we yeah. just in this country and in other uh countries we've just been lucky to not have that be in our conscious uh as often i i think i think you're probably right yeah it's only now that we're we're having to come to grips with this reality um the studies themselves presume that people aren't born 
bad necessarily, but that we're all coerced or seduced or otherwise led into violent behavior. Now, the author of this article, not Milgram, but the author of this one, he argues this is out of date thinking as well as the idea of any kind of pure nature oriented view. So that's worth thinking about in conjunction with this SCP. I want to give you a Milgram quote, though, to to pause and sort of think about here. Milgram himself said, Ordinary people, simply doing their jobs and without any particular hostility on their part, can become agents in a terrible destructive process. Moreover, even when the destructive effects of their work become patently clear and they are asked to carry out actions incompatible with the fundamental standards of morality – relatively few people have the resources needed to resist authority. That's really interesting to think about. I mean, think about it, not not just from this level of like Nazis committing atrocities, Uh but like your jobs. Like think think about the like hierarchical structure in a job workplace or whatever. Yeah, because it's one thing to imagine Nazis and have your your idea colored by all these storybook portrayals of Nazis. Yeah. And you can easily think, oh, I would stand up for that. I would be one of the good people. But uh, but yeah, think of all the the, the smaller uh, uh, mundane, yeah, mundane uh, actions of actions authority. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's it's really worth thinking about. And that brought me to um, this article called "Just Obeying Orders" out of New Scientist. It was published in 2014. And they took the point, they said Milgram later developed his idea of a mundane inclination to obey orders of authority into something he called agentic state theory. This was in his 1974 book, Obedience to Authority, the same one where he talks about Hannah Arendt's banality of evil. And according to Milgram, the essence of obedience consists in the fact that a person comes to view themselves as the instrument for carrying out another person's wishes, and they therefore no longer see themselves as responsible for their actions. Once this critical shift of viewpoint has occurred in a person, all of the essential features of obedience follow. So when you go back to this SCP, right, we've got this, I don't know, cultist child strapped down to a gurney and she has to be tortured with the Montauk experiment once a day, basically gets back to it that the reason why is because the personnel are all willing to shift viewpoints like this, right? Yeah. Now, the authors of this uh, article in New Scientist, they argue against Milgram's theory, actually, and they cite recent historical studies that question Arendt's interpretation of Eichmann, as well as Milgram's claim that human beings are programmed to obey authority. Now, I just want to pause here for a second. I never took that to be his claim. I always thought um, that the fact that he, they recognize that he saw these as studies as disobedience as much as obedience his argument to me doesn't seem to be deterministic about human nature right that i mean he makes the point like at least 10% of people even when there's the, these actors involved are going to disobey authority right so it's not necessarily like he's saying this is this is it this is exactly what humanity is no yeah he's saying i mean there's it is a silver lining in that a certain percentage of individuals would seemingly always stand up to some sort of injustice like this. Yeah. I guess the the depressing part is when you have to ask, well, is that percentage high enough to make a difference yeah. in even a, a very democratic process, much less, you know, the inner workings of a shadowy organization that tends to uh, weird alien specimens. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, exactly. And that's why I love this one. It's like, you know, when you really think about it beyond just like, you know, the idea of 
this uh mysterious cultist uh with a an experiment performed against their will every 24 hours there's like a lot of meat on the bone like ethically thematically going on with just this short little creepy pasta yeah and and asking basic ethical questions does like does is saving the world worth this this one individual injustice yeah does yeah. the um, do, do do the rights of all outweigh the rights of one well let's factor this in because i think this is where it gets even more complicated uh haslam and Riker, the authors of this study from 2014 they argue what's really going on is a balance between obedience and disobedience that's based on whether or not the person in the teacher role prioritizes the voice of the supervisor over the voice of the learner and to them this reflects whether the person identifies with the cause of science or more with the plight of the ordinary citizen. So this is really interesting to me. It's like it puts them in, in one of two camps, right? That the, in, in this case with the SCP, that this science is going to save the world, right? Uh-huh. At least that's what they're told or the plight of this ordinary girl who's being tortured by the Montauk experiment. In which case, if that's it, the orders position the experiment as being a worthy cause that must be pursued. So the level of identification between the supervisor and the learner is really important. But so, too, is how much they identify with the cause of capital S science. It's very interesting, especially like uh, I think from our our show's sort of uh, viewpoint. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what what ultimately is driving the research and the researchers, this idea that, that science is this thing beyond us and then we're just mere vessels for yeah. its uh, inquisitive nature? Or are we individuals engaging in a collective effort to better the human experience and human knowledge? Absolutely, yeah. It, it, it make, I think that this is one of those things that like we can pull out and it's applicable to almost every episode we've done, right? Like, what what's the goal of this project what's the what's the reason are we doing this for science's sake uh, it brings us back to cargo cult science right yeah. uh or is it you know uh is it somehow affecting the ordinary man somehow so to this end these authors did three studies in one they used virtual reality to replicate milgram's setup and another they asked people to describe groups of other people using pejorative terms and this ranged from the kkk to a family walking in the park uh, in their final study, they had actors perform all of Milgram's setup. So even the, the teacher role mm-hmm. was performed by an actor. And they recorded the reactions as if the actors were inhabiting these characters. And they found, once again, Milgram's results were almost exactly reproduced with these actors. So they basically found an increase in identification with science leads people to persist longer in these unpleasant tasks. Uh, and the last thing I want to say about this there's a researcher named Matthew Hollander, and he took the audio tapes from Milgram's study, and he researched uh, all of them. He listened to the whole thing, like a year and a half worth of these mm-hmm. studies, and he identified six types of resistance that were shown by the people involved with them, three of which were implicit and three were explicit. The implicit ones were silence or hesitation imprecations or laughter and some people who have listened to these tapes they interpret the laughter as being sadism but he said no the laughter is just this like uncomfortability of obeying the orders the explicit ones were when they addressed the learner and they would say things like are you sure you want me to continue with this 
or when they prompted the supervisor and would say, is it really necessary for me to continue doing this? Uh, and the last one was when they would just stop and they'd say, look, I'm not going to continue doing this. I'm done. Here's the really interesting thing from his study. Those who participated all the way to the end, the 450 volts, they all used the implicit strategies, the silence, laughter, etc. The participants who actually addressed the learners and tried to have a dialogue with them, they were the only people who stopped in Milgram's experiment. Hmm. So that speaks something to our, again, the identification. Do you identify with the, the, the person or do you identify with the cause, right? Yeah, and to what degree is there going to be any kind of uh, back-and-forth communication over any of this? Or yeah. is it just becoming a vessel for the orders? So this is, uh, to wrap it up, my uh, w- one of my favorite creepypastas I've ever looked at. Uh, whoever out there wrote it anonymously, bravo. Uh, it really made me think... Uh, pretty deeply about the ethics of what what the goals of science are, uh, not just in terms of like, you know, the fact based stuff of like, well, I got to fill out this IRB protocol, you know, but more along the lines of like, what's the point and what are we willing to do to get to it? Yeah. And I think in this, uh, this is another example of, of how SCP Foundation entries are kind of an, an evolution, uh, evolution of the form. Uh so instead of them just being like individual creepy bits of, uh, you know, semi wiki type material, yeah. they are little thought experiments, little paradoxes, um, that are flavored with sci-fi intrigue. And so, uh, I would, I would definitely recommend anyone who, uh, who found these interesting to, to check out that website. Uh, we'll include links on the landing page for this episode of stufftoblowyourmind.com to the individual entries that we profiled here. Yeah. Uh, so check those out, explore some more. And if you find some, then you think to yourself, oh, well, these are, these were perfect. If you guys do another SCP episode, you should do these. You should let us know about that. Yeah, definitely. Keep uh, the messages coming about creepy pastas. We, you know, if you keep wanting to hear them, we'll keep doing them. Uh, so let us know. Maybe it's an SCP. Maybe it's another creepy pasta. But point out stuff to us, and we'll look into it. And maybe creepy pasta four, uh, the revenge, <laughs> will be uh, coming up down the road. Uh, so if you want to reach out to us, well, some of the best ways are to just go to stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's where we've got all our articles, our videos, our podcasts, as well as links to all of our social media. Yeah, and if you're listening during Halloween, uh, we also have the new episodes of Monster Science there for you. Uh, explorations of the connections between fictional monsters and real-world science. Yeah, absolutely. I highly recommend Monster Science, my favorite thing that we do here at How Stuff Works. It's uh, This is a treat to me. This is my Christmas. Uh, so, if you want to write us the old-fashioned way, though, and you want to tell us about creepypastas, maybe praise uh, Robert for his performance in Monster Science, or you've got some experiments that you'd like us to conduct, you can always write to us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Thank you.